Nelson went over that briefly, at least in Leviticus 23, showing that this is to be kept, and it wasn't done away. There are New Testament scriptures that refer to keeping the fast, and keeping Pentecost, and then Christ even teaching in the temple on the last great day of the feast. So very clearly, the New Testament church kept the holy days that were instituted under Moses uh, in the Old Testament. So here we are, still keeping it, and the reason that we are still keeping it is it portends great things for the future. We know through the holy day uh, cycle from Passover through the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, and everything in between describe the purpose and plan of God for salvation. It begins with Christ being crucified at Passover, and then a period of time where we are to be putting sin out of our lives, or as Christ told the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, to be overcoming sin, the world, and becoming more like the Father and the Son. Uh, when we do become God part of the members of the family of God. He wants it to be a smooth transition. <laughs> he is not going to take people who are still in the midst of sin and suddenly turn them into God beings. He has a period of time here called our physical life in which we go through once we understand a process of overcoming, of growing, of changing, and trying to become more godlike in the way we conduct our lives. So, uh, Passover begins that process. Then Pentecost, uh, overall, represents the uh, coming of God's Holy Spirit so that we might have help in growing and overcoming, because on our own we can't do anything. Uh, to have true godly character requires His Spirit. Pentecost also pictures the... Uh, the engagement of Christ to his bride, uh, so that his mind, his spirit, his heart uh, begins to become part of her. Then the Feast of Trumpets, of course, pictures the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in Christ, not of all people that have lived, but of the dead in Christ. The rest of the dead, according to Revelation 20, rise not again until the thousand years is finished. So, trumpets pictures that return and the resurrection of the first fruits, which for Revelation 14, 7 says uh, that the first, these are the first fruits, the first resurrection. And that is the scripture about the 144,000. So, there are only 144,000 in the first resurrection, the bride of Christ. Uh, the rest wait. Then you have the Day of Atonement, which pictures becoming at one with Christ. When does a human couple become one? Well, once they have the marriage ceremony, then they consummate the marriage uh, in a physical way, and that is the what we call the consummation of the marriage. So, the Day of Atonement pictures the joining of Christ with His bride in the marriage and pictures the consummation of that when they become at one, totally together, forevermore. Uh, and we fast on that day, so far, uh, to 
afflict our souls to subject ourselves to Christ because by nature we don't. So it is there to humble us, to get rid of human pride and that ridge of resistance against Christ so that we can become a perfectly responsive bride to Him. Then comes the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which pictures the 7,000 years of mankind's existence on this earth. God created the weak as a perfection. Six days shall you labor and do your work. Six days, the number of six, is man's day. The seventh is from God, and it is his day. So Satan and man have been ruling here on this earth now for almost 6,000 years, getting very close to it. And the millennium of Christ and the sabbatical, the time of peace and prosperity that is about to come, is pictured by the Feast of Tabernacles. So we're here to celebrate a time of restoration, of renewal, uh, of all things godly being put back in place, Satan being bound, as he is at the beginning of the millennium, as Revelation 20 again shows. And everyone will live in peace, harmony, and safety. And even if you start to sin, You'll have someone tap you on the shoulder and say, uh-uh, don't do that. I think that's Isaiah 30, 21, or 21, 30, one of those. I, can't, I get it mixed up. I think it's 30, 21. Anyway, you will be required to keep God's law. It says if you don't come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you won't get any rain. So there'll be an, all, an automatic and immediate uh, reason to keep the feast. If you want rain and you want crops, in other words, if you want to live, uh, you'll come to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. That's in Zechariah 14. So the plan of God is uh, carried out in type every year from Passover through the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Paul speaks of the order of resurrections. So you have the first resurrection of the Bride of Christ. Then you have those uh, who are not raised up for a thousand years. That's the last great day of the feast. For those people who were born, died as babies, died old, whatever, never had an opportunity at salvation. They will be raised to physical life and be given a period of time to live under Christ and the Father's rule and do things right, and most people will be saved under those circumstances. So God's plan is not a failure. Um, He says all Israel will be saved there in Romans 11. So um, he has a plan that when Satan is not around, people will turn to God, and he will save most in the long run. So that's what we're here to celebrate as a time of restoration, a time of renewal, A time when war will cease and peace will reign. Uh, None of us have understood peace yet. Whether it's family problems, husband and wife problems, children problems, aunts, uncles and in-laws problems, problems at work, problems at school, uh, problems with yourself, uh, world wars, (laughs) you go from the small to the large. And mankind has known very, very little peace 
since Adam and Eve turned against God and worshipped Satan, which is what they did when they obeyed him instead of God. That broke the first commandment, idolatry. And it's been that way ever since. So here we are on the first day of this feast to picture a time of renewal and restitution. Let's go, first of all, to Acts 3. Uh, to set the context, of course, you're very familiar with Acts 2, which was the beginning of the New Testament church. And as they were all gathered together in one place and in accord, in agreement, uh, Christ sent the Holy Spirit in a very visible way with tongues of fire, and uh, people began to preach, and people who were there from different countries, probably mostly Jewish people that uh, were like, uh, you know, Polish Jews or something who didn't speak Yiddish, but they spoke Polish, for an example, uh, were there. But they heard the apostles speak in their own language. So it was a gift of tongues that was given there so that everyone could understand a very, very powerful demonstration of the beginning of the new covenant that had greater promises than the old covenant. Uh, Life eternal was offered in this covenant. And right after that, beginning that day, Thousands of people were healed, thousands of people repented and were converted and baptized. Uh, it was quite a, a, a renewal, quite an awakening, a restoration, if you will, of at least a bit of the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve knew peace and safety, security, they had no enemies, they had no problems, the temperature was perfect, the weather was perfect, uh, the food was perfect. They had no faults, no problems between themselves. A wonderful time that they had, however short it may have been, until they sinned against God. And ever since, there's been a breach between man and God. Uh, the first man, Adam, represents all human flesh. The second man, Adam, Christ, now becomes a representative of, ultimately, all human flesh. Right now, it's not there for most of the world, even yet. It is only for those who are called out, chosen to be converted at this time and to be partakers as a bride of Christ. It doesn't apply to the rest of the world yet. They're still living under the Old Covenant, and they will be punished under the terms of the Old Covenant with the day of the Lord and the seven last plagues and all these horrors that are coming will be as a result of having broken the Old Covenant never having been offered the new, except through the Spirit of Truth, which comes from God, and most Christianity does not have that. Only those called out ones who've been given the truth. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the churches of this world do not have the truth. And unfortunately, many of the splinters of God's church, His called out ones in this end time, are losing the truth, one doctrine at a time, or two or three at a time, but they're losing what God revealed. Not only did he reveal many things through Christ and the apostles, but there was a renewal of health, there was a renewal of the Spirit of God in a way that it had never been experienced and known before here in Acts 2. Then we come down to chapter 3. And 
I think this was Peter here talking, uh, and he says, verse 19, Repent you therefore, speaking to people who had gathered. They'd seen the signs, the wonders, the power of God demonstrated. So he used this opportunity to tell them what they needed to do. And that was repent and be converted or changed that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal. So Christ was there, obviously, in Acts 2, in spirit, but he did not appear physically uh, or in a way, a manifestation that they could see. But certainly there was a time of refreshing and renewal and restoration there, was there not? A lot of people had their health restored. It even got to the point that the apostles' shadow passing over people caused them to be healed of all kinds of life-threatening maladies and, and crippling and all kinds of difficulties that they had. So it was a time of restoration, but he's talking about an even greater time of refreshing. He's pointing to the future here, to the return of Christ and the real, final, ultimate refreshing that comes with his rule here on this earth. So what Peter, James, Paul, and the others, well, not Paul at that point, but Peter, James, John, and the other apostles, at that time were experiencing was a time of restitution and refreshing. And new opportunity, new covenant. And yet he preached that there's a greater coming on beyond that, another time. And then he explains, And he shall send Emmanuel, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive, stays there, until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So he gives us a little shot here of what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all of them talked about was the return of Christ and the restitution of all things. And they gave those prophecies before he even got here the first time. But they were looking to his first coming, as you see there in Psalm 22 and 3 and Isaiah 52 and others, but also beyond that to the time when he would come in glory and in power, as in Isaiah 24, uh, Malachi, the end of Malachi, and so on, speaking of his return in power and glory. So the prophets of old spoke of different times of restitution, of things that would be coming. Uh, And things will be restored at the end time. Let's, uh, let's turn back for a moment to Malachi, the last chapter. Uh, and, and here, Malachi, one of the ancient prophets before Christ's first coming, uh, says, For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the Eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So he's talking here of a time of great devastation at the end of this age. Uh, what did Christ himself say? That the tribulation would be worse than anything that has ever happened heretofore. Be worse than Noah's flood. 
How so? Well, the Noatian deluge came very quickly and people drowned very rapidly, and that was the end of that. But this, these incoming time events go over a span of at least three and a half years, I mean four and a half, and even longer than that for the nations of Israel. Because this nation and other of the tribes of Israel are going to be destroyed ahead of time. Then the tribulation occurs, which is three and a half years of world rule by the New World Order. Then you have the seven last plagues that come during the year that Christ and his bride are having their honeymoon on the Sea of Glass. So that's a lot longer than people suffered in Noah's day. So this is the worst tribulation that will ever have occurred on this earth. So Malachi is looking way beyond Christ's first coming. I've said before, speaking of Christ's first coming and second coming is a misnomer in itself, really. Uh, Christ has been to this earth many, many times. He came to create things. Uh, he was walking, he was on the plains of Mamre with Abraham when uh, he was fed the, the fatted calf and milk. Uh, I mean, I could go through and show you many times Christ was here on the earth. But we speak in terms of his first coming as when he was born and grew up and lived here, uh, in a sense. But we need to understand he's been here a lot more than that. Uh, then after that, he came back several times. He came back and spent three and a half years, apparently, in the desert with Paul. So that was another coming. And uh, I can show you three or four comings at the end of this age, when he first returns to take the saints up for the wedding, when he comes back with them to fight a war, and then when he comes down with the Father in the New Jerusalem uh, for a third time. So he, he, he goes back and forth a lot. It's not just the first and the second coming by any means. It's more than that. But for sake of understanding the two critical areas uh, would be the time he was born and then his first appearance in glory afterward. And he appears in glory several times after that and then stays here when he and the Father come down at the beginning of the millennium. Anyway, he's talking about that time that is coming. Verse 2, But to you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Healing is a restoration, spiritually, physically. And you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. We won't be like wild animals running around doing what we want all the time and goring and budding and chewing and uh, thrashing around, but domesticated. And you shall tread down the wicked. The wild animals won't be here anymore. I mean wild humans. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, says the Eternal of hosts. So Malachi was given a message from Christ himself. And then he says in closing, Remember you the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Now, we know that two will come at the end time uh, who are typified by Moses and Elijah as an end time witness that God is God. And that's who appeared in the transfiguration with Christ when that vision came, you remember, uh, Moses and Elijah. It wasn't Job and Daniel. It was Moses and Elijah because they typify the end time too. 
And that's what he's explaining here, because he mentions Moses and Elijah, the two, the two witnesses that God is God. Now Moses, in ancient times, was certainly before all Mitzrayim in the world, and all the Canaanite and other tribes that were in the promised land when Israel came back into the promised land after being in captivity, knew of what had happened in Mitzrayim and the Red Sea. Because they even said, the different tribes, the Amorites, Hittites, Moabites, and so on, well, we're afraid of them. Look what their God did to Mitzrayim or Egypt. So word got around. Moses was uh, a primary witness that God is God in heaven by what happened at the Red Sea. And that story is recounted over and over and over throughout the Bible as a monster uh, witness that God is God. Now, Elijah came as well. Uh, well, with Moses, of course, God's law was codified and given. It was known before then, but it was codified by Moses and written down in stone to be put in the Ark of the Covenant. So it was physically done at that point, at the beginning of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. So, here in the end... The two witnesses are going to be commandment keepers. They're not going to be people who say the commandments are done away. They'll be keeping the commandments, just as the New Testament apostles kept the commandments and preached it to be so, including Paul, believe it or not. Uh, so, remember the things that Moses taught you. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal. So before the day of the Lord, before... All these events become uh, the powerful witness that they will be in the destruction. God is going to send one in the same spirit and attitude of Elijah. Well, what did Elijah do? He got rid of the prophets of Baal. Uh, what must the modern Elijah do? He has to decry, put down, prove false all the religions of the world. All the false prophets, whether they're Buddhists, Christians, Jews, or whatever they happen to be. That has to be done, and it will be done by the two witnesses, and particularly one whose job that is more, perhaps, than the other. One represents the law and is a stronger example, because Moses was a stronger light in the past than was Elijah. Uh, but these all things happen before the coming of the great and dead, dreadful day of the eternal. That's a point I want to make here, because it has a lot to do with where we're going today. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood that to some degree. Uh, and he thought, and a lot of people thought, he was the Elijah to come. So we had YOU camps and all kinds of youth activities to try to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. And in actuality, it didn't really do that. Many of those activities precluded the parents even being there, so it turned them to youth activities, not to their parents. Although that thought was behind the development of some of those things, YAS, YOU, and so on at the time. But did it turn them? Most of our children, most represented by me and you sitting here today, even though we became part of the church, are not today part of it. 
Were their hearts turned to the religion of their fathers? No. God called the older generation. He said, it wouldn't die out until these things are finished. And it's coming soon because you look like you're about to die out, most of you, including me. We're getting old. Uh, He's called a few of the second or third generation, but not very many. So that wasn't really done in Worldwide. Now I've come, I think, to identify this in three different levels that God intended. What about turning the hearts of the children to their fathers? In Isaiah 55, I believe it is, it says that we are to turn to our fathers, Abraham and Sarah. So what have we done in the world today and in so-called Christianity? They denied the example and the teaching of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and so on and done away with the law of God. So he says that we're to look back to the hole we were digged from. We're to look to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and to Sarah. So our hearts need to be turned to our ancient fathers and the way they lived. We're going to have a lot to say about that during this feast and some of those fathers and how we need to be like them. Okay? So, well, I got ahead of myself. The first level, the most important level, is turning our hearts to our Father in heaven which in turn will cause his heart to turn back to us. He says in many prophecies, he's turned his face from us because he can't bear our sins. And he says, when we repent and turn to him with our whole hearts, he will turn his face back to us. So the first level that has to be addressed is our hearts to our Father in heaven, which will in turn turn his heart back to us. That's the first and most important level. But to aid and abet and help that process, we need to turn our hearts back to our ancient spiritual fathers and to see how they lived and what they did and go thou and do likewise. And that helps turn the father back to us because he loved Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and David, and so on. And they pleased him. And we need to please him. So we need to look at their example and do as they did. So then the third, and least important by comparison, but still important, is to turn the hearts of the children to their human fathers and the human fathers to the children through understanding proper family and child-rearing methods according to Scripture, not according to what was his name? I'm trying to say Sack or Sock. But, yeah. And all the others that are like him. And all the crazy philosophy that's out there today about rearing children and how to do family. It's just, it's upside down and backward. We have a society that Christ said in Isaiah 3 would... Uh, Let's see, children would be our oppressors and women would rule... No, women would be our oppressors and children would rule over us, I guess it is. Well, they kind of flip back and forth. 
And that's what we have today. We do not have the father in charge, the mother supporting him, and the children loving them both. It doesn't exist in our society today. We have little brats, and we have a feminist society that's upside down and backward. And that has to be shown to be a lie. So there's three levels that that has to be done. Now, I'm not getting away from what I started out talking about, because now let's go to Mark 9. Mark 9. Now, here, uh, they, this is the story of the transfiguration, where Christ took James, Peter, and John up on the mountain, and a vision was there, and there appeared uh, Elijah and Moses in verse 4, talking with Emmanuel. So Peter says, well, shall we build tabernacles? Because he understood the resurrection. He understood that Moses and Elijah weren't in heaven. No man has ascended except he which came down. Not even David, it says. So Peter understood this had to be the millennium. Because if Moses and Elijah were there, uh, it was Feast of Tabernacles, or that which the Feast of Tabernacles pictures. So he says, shall we build booths? Well, that was Feast of Tabernacles. That instruction was given in Leviticus, or Exodus, whatever. Uh, so they thought, in the vision, the millennium was there. Let's build tabernacles for Moses and Elijah. That was nice. They didn't have to build their own. Uh, Peter at least had a serving attitude. Uh, anyway, uh, when they came down off the mountain, Christ told them not to tell anyone about it uh, until he had risen from the dead, into verse 9. Uh, and they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one another what the rising from the dead should mean. <clears throat> so in verse 11, they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? Now, the book of Malachi says that Elijah must first come before these things all, all come to an end. So they says, why is this? What are, what, are, what are you talking about here? And he answered and told them, Elijah verily comes first and restores all things. Now, what we read in Malachi is an indication of that, a, a restoral of the, of the relationship between God and man between our forefathers and us, and in our own physical families. So that's a restoration in itself, a huge one, that has not occurred since Adam and Eve, that must occur. But he restores all things. So it's a time before Christ returns, before all these end-time events, things have to be restored. So there has to be a period of restoration, a period of renewal, before Christ even returns, okay? Isn't that what that's saying? Now see what Christ says here. Elijah truly comes first and restores all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set as nothing or held in utter contempt. So he says, I will send, before all these things come to pass, and Elijah, and that individual will restore all things, knowledge, understanding, 
And he will also be considered as nothing and be held in utter contempt, just as Christ and the original John the Baptist were held. And that they, but I say to you that Elijah is indeed come, and they've done to him whatsoever they wanted, as it is written of him. So you read the other scriptures about John the Baptist, and of course they took his head off. He was held in utter contempt uh, and destroyed. And Christ was held in utter contempt and was killed. Uh, the end time Elijah will also restore all things and be held in contempt and ultimately killed by the New World Order uh, three days before Christ returns. So, the end time is like the other times. But there's a time of restitution. I'm building up to something here. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm talking loud. I get excited about these things, and I may blow my voice out before I'm done today. Now, let's consider something in John 10. John 10. And go down to verse 22. John 10:22. And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. So here a feast is mentioned. It's a feast that has something to do with some kind of dedication. And it came in the winter time. Alright? And Emmanuel walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews came and questioned him and so on, and he told them they weren't of his sheep, uh, that his sheep would hear his voice, and I know them and they follow me. And that was the message he gave to those Jews at the Feast of Dedication in the temple of God. Now, why is that in here? Is it important in any way? The Bible is purified seven times, according to the Psalms. Uh, there is a great deal of history from Adam down till today that is not included in this book. Even of the miracles of Christ, he says there aren't enough books to put it all in. So, the Bible is a very succinct uh, reduction, that's not the word I want, but uh, uh, a summary, I guess you'd have to say, of mankind's existence here on the earth. Just a microcosm of it. So, every word is important. We are to live by every word of God. So, if it's in the Bible, it must have some importance of some kind. Duh! If God put it in the Bible, doesn't it have some significance? Now, we started keeping Purim a few years ago because there's a whole book of the Bible dedicated to a restoral under Esther and her uncle and how the Jews were persecuted and then God ultimately saved their lives. And the Jews have kept Purim ever since. But it's in God's Word. It's in the Bible. Therefore, it's important, not just to the Jews, but to all Christians. So we started keeping Purim because it represents how God saved those people. 
And did he not save his people at the Red Sea? Has he not saved people over and over throughout history? <clears throat> and here in the end time, we have many scriptures in Matthew and Daniel and Revelation and so on, showing that God will make a separation and he will protect his end time church, his called out ones, at the very end. So we, sitting here today, may not feel it, but what's going on in the world is threatening our very existence. What's happening in the presidential race right now, today, threatens our very existence. Because there are people in power who want all people who ascribe to Christianity to die. And there's a whole Muslim world on top of that that wants them to die. And on and on it goes. And Satan the devil wants everyone who is a true believer in God to die. So if we are to survive... We have to have help from Almighty God. Now, did God put Purim in there to remind us every year that we need to trust in God for our very lives? I believe so, and that's why I keep it today. Didn't keep it in worldwide. Did it need restored? Yeah, I think so. That was some of God's words we were letting drop to the ground, ignoring a whole book of the Bible we totally ignored. Now, why is the piece of dedication mentioned in here? Was it just a Jewish thing? Was it something that Christ paid attention to? Well, he was walking in the temple during the feast of dedication. He wasn't in Nazareth. He wasn't somewhere else. He was not only in Jerusalem, he was in the temple. And the Jews came to him, and he taught them on that day. And he told them, you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. Now his message at the Feast of Dedication was, you better listen to my voice. Verse 28, I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. And then the Jews decided it was time to stone him. They did that often, but he got away. So what was his message at the Feast of Dedication? That his sheep would hear his voice, and they would be given eternal life. Now, is that a restitution? A restoration? Here we are, brethren. Look at us. No, don't. We're old and wrinkled and, <laughs> you know, we're dying out. This generation is disappearing. He tells us in Ezra and in Haggai that there will be old men around who saw the first temple in its glory under Herbert Armstrong and will see the last temple in its glory under the two witnesses. So there's... Not too long a gap between the destruction of one and the restoral of the other, because some of you here have seen the former, and you look like you might make it to the latter, if it comes quickly. <laughs> and I think it will. But the message is of salvation and restoration. 
Now, what do you think of the Feast of Dedication? It starts December 25th. I had never really looked into it, but I had heard the 12 Days of Christmas song, and uh, I decided to look it up and see what it was, because I knew it was kind of tied in with Jewish Hanukkah and the 12 Days of Christmas, whatever that meant. And it was kind of a mishmash of a of a replica or a, a counterfeit for Christ's birth and so on of Christmas. So I assumed it was all tied together that way. Well, according to WikiLeaks and uh, WikiLeaks, Wiki, <laughs> Wikipedia, you get all my wikis mixed up uh, and the Wiccans along with them. But. Uh, It says that the 12 days of Christmas is essentially a Christian, and you understand what I mean by Christian, the Christian world, so-called, celebration of the nativity or the birth of Christ. And it begins on the day that he was born, in their view, December 25th. We know he was born in the fall because there were shepherds abiding in the field and so on and so forth. But they look upon it as a 12-day keeping of a celebration of Christ's birth, beginning on what they call Christmas Day and ending January 5th, 12 days later. There's an abbreviated version that is an eight days of Christmas. Didn't get a popular song, but some people believe that. Then you have the Jewish Feast of Dedication, which is what is spoken of here in John 10. If you look it up, you will find that it had to do with a historical event that the Jews were remembering, and that's why it was established, was because of that historic event. Had nothing to do with Christmas, had nothing to do with the birth of Christ, it had to do with a historic event. And that's where we need to go, because we understand Christmas and the twelve days of Christmas and all that's baloney, and it's Satanism, uh, worshiping a wrong god. It is interesting that it was placed at roughly the same time as the Feast of Dedication. Uh, what does Satan want renewed? Well, he wants Christmas to come so that he can renew his trip down your chimney, fat man coming down the roof, and the giving of gifts and supposedly the restoring of Christ's attitude and spirit. Although there are more drunk drivers killed and more pedestrians killed and more murders on Christmas than any other day of the year. So the Christmas spirit, uh, the spirit of God doesn't come. The spirit of Satan comes more. Family arguments, fights, they fight more on Christmas than they do Thanksgiving. Anyway, let's not go further into that rabbit hole. But let's go back to a historic event. In about 165 to 167 B.C., uh, scholars argue over the exact year, but in that time frame, there was a ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, yeah, Epiphanes. And He was not in Jerusalem. He was in Egypt somewhere, I forget now. But 
there was a rumor that went through the Jewish community in Jerusalem, or the Israelite community, mostly Jews at the time, uh, that, it, that Antiochus had died. And lo and behold, the Jews and the Israelites also that were there had a party. They celebrated. They hated Antiochus Epiphanes because of what he had done to them. So they had a big celebration upon hearing of his death. Now, wasn't it Will Rogers who heard that he had died, and he sent out a message that says that the, the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated? Well, Antiochus Epiphanes took the same approach. <laughs> and not only had his death been exaggerated, because it hadn't occurred, but they threw a party and a celebration because of his death. Now that irritated him. He had vanity, pride, and ego like a human being does, and people celebrating at his death instead of mourning was unconscionable to the man. So, forthwith, he sent an army and attacked Jerusalem, did a great deal of damage to the city, killed 40,000 people in one day. 40,000 people. That's a city about the size of St. George. Every person there dead in one day. There may be 50,000 there now, but just a general-sized city. And then, he desecrated the temple, did a certain amount of damage to it, and then, he's killed a pig, a sow, on the altar that God had put there for clean animal sacrifices between him, between the people and God. And then he took different pieces and parts of that sow and scattered them throughout the temple, totally befouling and defiling the temple of God. That event is mentioned in the book of Daniel. But Daniel is an end-time prophecy. It's not just a historical book. And in fact, God says of the book of Daniel that it was to be sealed up until the end. Couldn't even be understood until the end. So if you look upon what Antiochus did in the original defiling of the temple is the final story, you got it wrong. Daniel says in chapter 9 that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and that at the time that that is finished, Antiochus will again defile the temple and that as our signal in Matthew 24 and in Daniel to flee to Zion to the place of safety, the place prepared for her from Revelation 12, because they will take over the temple of God and Jerusalem, the true Jerusalem, for three and a half years. Now, interestingly enough, in the historical situation, the temple lay desecrated, Jerusalem damaged, for three years. Then a leader of the Jews, Judas Maccabeus, uh, wanted it restored. So they spent time 
restoring the physical damage. Then they went through a purification period to do godly sacrifices, prayers, and so on, uh, to cleanse the temple, that it be restored to its original glory, and to be uh, qualified for God's presence to be there instead of pigs and other unclean things. So three and a half years at the end time, the end time Antiochus and Antichrist will take over the true temple of God. And the, the, the spiritual temple, the people, will flee to Zion for safety. But the physical temple that will be built, and the city that will be built, uh, will be wrecked and ruined for three and a half years. Now, if you look up that situation, the commentators say that what Antiochus did in restoring was he also renewed he a time of restitution, a time of cleansing, and of purification. And what the Jews did was established eight days of celebration from the purification, the restoration, the rededication of a temple of God that had been restored. Now, does that remind you of anything that we have heard here from the prophecies in the last 20 years? That a time of restitution, of restoration, is coming, where God is going to make a microcosm of the millennium. We find that during the days of Joshua and Zerubbabel and the gathering at the end time of the remnant of God's people, that he will put a wall of fire or protection, security around them. Security is one of the main elements of the millennium, is it not? and that there will be much men and cattle. He says in Isaiah 35 and many other scriptures how he will heal the lame and the blind and the deaf and many diseases, just like he did in Acts 2 at a time of restoration, time of rebuilding, a time of beginning, rebeginning of the things of God. So he tells us he'll send an Elijah at the end time to restore things, restore, renew, Restitution, purification of our thoughts and our actions and the things we do, has to be. So, the Feast of Dedication was a time of rededicating the temple. Isn't that what we are here to do? Hasn't Worldwide Church of God been destroyed, defiled, befouled by the Tkachas and their false doctrine? of modern evangelical approach, of grace only and no law, and doing away with all the things of God. They've kind of kept the Feast of Tabernacles sort of as a voluntary uh, festival simply because it's been a part of our hearts for so long. But did the Tkachas believe in it? Not on your life. They're just evangelical Protestants. They're not Christians anymore. They don't keep the truth anymore. Those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. They say they're doing it in the spirit, but they haven't kept the truth. Therefore, it's a false religion. It's a satanic religion. 
They led the church from God right back into Satanism. Now, God said it would be scattered and spewed as a result of wrong thought, Laodiceanism, lukewarmism, and so on. And that has occurred. Then he starts telling us he's going to regather there in the book of Zephaniah a remnant who will be faithful to him, and he calls it the latter temple. So, under the two witnesses, that 10% remnant will be called, and they will renew and restore and rededicate the temple of God to the state that it is supposed to be, of true righteousness, not of false, feigned righteousness like we had. So we are sitting right now on the cusp of an incredible renewal. We need to understand that. The Feast of Dedication represented a time of celebrating a renewal and a rededication. They did it for eight days, and the story is historically that they sang hymns, they prayed, uh, they lighted the city up with lots of light, more than normal, uh, and isn't it incumbent upon us to be children of the light, walking in the light? When there's more light shed, restoral of truth, isn't the light of God being uh, uh, improved and strengthened? Yes, it is. And Elijah has to do those things. And then God has to do them through his healings and so on. Uh, Josephus called it the Feast of Lights because they had more candles and more lights going during those eight days than at any other time. We have a group of people today called the Illuminati in the world, supposedly the enlightened ones, and the rest of us are in darkness. And they intend to rule the world through the one they think is the spirit of light, Satan, who is darkness. And they are in darkness. Only those who know the truth of God are the enlightened or the illumined ones. And we are to shine as the stars in heaven, ultimately. But we're to show up as lights to the world even now. And when God restores the latter temple, it will be held forth by those who go, the two who go to preach about it. And they will point back to Zion and Jerusalem and say, that's the way you're supposed to live, and those people have the blessing of God, they have security, you can't touch them. You sent an army after them when they fled there from the temple in Jerusalem, and it got destroyed, and you can't touch those people. They're secure, and they're keeping God's commandments, not grace only. And God has blessed them incredibly. You should live that way, and you could have the blessing of God. And then they'll be like the Jews, Jews and took up stones to stone them. And ultimately they will kill them just before Christ returns. But a microcosm of the millennium and a restoration is just ahead of us. A building of a temple is just ahead of us. It'll be happening 
I hope by some of us sitting right here, whom God has revealed this to. Now, here is something I had not tied in until, well, until looking into this a couple, three months ago. But this point didn't even really tie in until very recently. <clears throat> Let's go back to the book of Haggai for a moment. Keeping in mind that the Feast of Dedication, or Rededication and Restoral of Renewal of the Temple, done in the days of Judas Maccabeus, uh, was done on the 25th of Chislu. It's in modern use of the Gregorian calendar, they just use December 25th. But it was literally the 20th day of Chislu, which was the ninth month. Okay? That's when it was restored, and they have celebrated ever since that purification and restoration, beginning on Chislu the 25th, according to the Jewish calendar. It does not always fall on December 25th of the Gregorian calendar, because the Jews follow at least an approximation of the calendar in heavens. So the date that they determine is the 25th of Chislu, is the date they begin the Feast of Dedication and the celebration that, that they do to this day. Now notice here in Haggai, uh, you're all familiar with the book. I've been through it many times and it's about worn out here. I've got scotch tape on my pages. But it starts out by showing that people say it isn't the time for the temple to be built. And everybody who believes in God and any kind of a temple always believes it's time for the spiritual temple to be built in our bodies, as the New Testament shows. But if you say we need to build a physical temple, almost everybody says, oh, no, 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 no. Or, that's for the Jews to do. Forgetting that Christ divorced the Jews and said, I'll have nothing to do with you until you accept the apostles and the ministry that I've sent. So it's going to be God's people, under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses, who rebuild the temple with a remnant, 10% remnant, of what was Worldwide Church of God. So we know that story. Now let's go down to uh, Haggai uh, 2. He tells them all in verse 4 to be strong and work, for I'm with you, says the Eternal. And he says, it'll get dangerous, verse 5, but my spirit is, remains among you, so don't be afraid. The temple is going to be built in very, very perilous times. Okay? But don't be afraid. For thus says the eternal of hosts, setting the timeline here, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now you can read Isaiah 24 and Revelation and various other places. Joel would show great convolutions in the earth at the end time. So he says, when this temple is being rebuilt, it is shortly before, just a little while before he shakes the earth like a rag doll, which is coming very soon now. So the temple has to be built very soon. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, did we have 
truly the glory of God in Worldwide Church of God? No. We had the Spirit of God. We had a good foundation of truth. Not all things, but certainly a good foundation of truth. And God blessed it and used it as a calling arm to call people to the truths of God. And then it flew apart, and now he is going to restore it with a faithful remnant. And not only will those truths be maintained, but much more will also be restored, including the temple, including Jerusalem. And you better know where those are if you're going to rebuild them. Okay? And it ain't going to be the Jews, and it ain't going to be in the Middle East. I'll guarantee you that. Now, let's continue here. This is a time just a little while before terrible events break out. And he will put his glory in it. Doesn't it say in Zechariah 2, at that time he will come and dwell with us, uh, whether he's physically visible or not, but his glory will be there in a way that it has not been before. Uh, tantamount, at least, to Acts 2, where there were visible flames of fire and uh, a very physical manifestation of the Spirit of God. And that's going to happen again. And I dare say it will be stronger than it was in Acts 2. Because this is the culmination of all the events in man's history right at the end when he shakes the world in a way that it has never been shaken. And he will manifest his power and his glory in ways that have never yet happened before. And this is before he ever comes back. Okay? This is restoral ahead of time. It isn't millennial yet in nature because it's not worldwide. And the Father and the Son aren't ruling yet. So it's something that is coming. It's on its way. And he shows ahead of time what it's going to be like so that the two witnesses have something solid to point the world at and say, this is the way it ought to be. If you don't have an example, it's just words. But if you have a place where it's being done, and God is blessing it like he says he's going to in all these prophecies, wow! But they stone Christ, too. <laughs> so they won't believe it. Now let's go on here just a little more. Verse 8, this is a strange place for this, it seems. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal of hosts. Now, silver and gold must be used in the temple. The temple vessels must be found because they have to be put in the temple. Uh, much is going to be restored. So God has preserved the temple vessels under Jerusalem and under another place where Solomon's mines were uh, to be brought out. Now, we've read Isaiah 44 and 45 where it says that he is going to take a worldly man who does not know him and he's going to reveal to him the hidden treasures and the, the things of God that are buried and put away so no man knows where they are. He's going to show him... And they're going to appear, and they'll be used in the temple. 
And he says that that gold and that silver, not just bullion or mined gold, because they mine gold all over the world, but the gold that is the vessels of the temple of God cannot be denied when they're found. And it says, these will be shown so that they'll know from the east to the west that God is God. This will be a powerful manifestation. And even the guy that's revealed to is going to have to understand that God is God. There's a real God. And I believe I know the man that God has used because I believe the things he's shown me and the things i found on my own and that God has shown me prove that this is the case. And they're going to show up real soon now. He says there in Isaiah 44, just before he talks about those things being revealed, that I will remove your sins as a cloud in one day. So we may be pointing to one specific day where things change. Let's go on here. Gold and the silver is his. And then he says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, and in this place will I give peace. So the remnant is going to have security, and it is going to have peace. We've never had that. We don't have that in the church today. Now, in the fourth, 24th day of the ninth month, God asks a question. The priests say, or concerning the law, he asks, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt touch bread or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. And Haggai said, so is this people. We touch the world, we touch the things of Satan, it makes us unclean. This has got to be a temple that is restored, and only God's people are there, those that he stirs up to bring, and they're not going to touch Satan, they won't touch the world, they will come out of her, my people, and serve the God, the living God of heaven and earth. Totally separate from the rest of the world, in a place where they are protected. So he says, but I look around now, and what they do is unclean. Then he says, and now I pray to you, consider from this day and upward. Now we're talking about the ninth month, the 24th day, when this was given. From before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the eternal. So there's something that is going to happen, a restoral, we'll see, before the temple is even built. Now that reminds me of Zechariah 3, which says that the men under uh, Joshua there, one of the witnesses, will do, be men of signs and wonders whether they themselves do signs and wonders or whether signs and wonders are done to them, like incredible healings and so on, that will cause the all seven eyes, the eyes of the churches of God, the seven of Revelation 2 and 3, to look to the stone that is put before Joshua. Who's the stone? Christ is the stone. He's the chief cornerstone. And those signs and wonders that are done will cause people to look to Christ. 
Now, is that causing people to turn to their father and their elder brother and to restore that relationship to God from man? You bet it is, repairing the breach between God and man. Now, that happens on the ninth month, 24th day. This was written hundreds of years before Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple of God. Okay? That was roughly in the, say, 600, I didn't look it up, but about 600 A.D. when many of these prophecies were written, 7 to 500. So several hundred years before Antiochus defiled the temple, Haggai said that God would restore his blessings to the latter temple, the church here in the end time, on the 24th day of the ninth month. Anything beginning to click in here? Let's make it do so. Before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the eternal. So, speaking on the ninth and the twenty-fourth, before the temple is even built, since those days were, when one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press vat for to draw out fifty vessels, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet ye turn not to me, says the Eternal. Now, is that what happened to the Worldwide Church of God? We had a spiritual famine overtake us. And there wasn't much left. And we sought God, or did we? We didn't turn to Him. Most of Laodicea does not. What about you, Laodiceans, and me? Are we turning? Are we turning to God with all our hearts? So he says, this is what I did to the former temple. And before a stone is laid upon a stone in the new temple, the latter temple... Something else is going to occur. Then he reiterates, verse 18, Consider now, from this day and upward, or forward, from the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, think about it. Is the seed yet in the barn? If what we've been trying to do right here in restoring our relationship to God produced fruit to the point of the kind of blessings that we look to and see in the prophecies that haven't yet occurred, we've sowed some seed, we're working on it, but we haven't harvested the crop yet. Seed's not in the barn. As yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree has not brought forth. We've talked about it. We've read about it. But it hasn't happened yet. From this day will I bless you. From the ninth month, 24th day. Now God wrote that and picked that day hundreds of years before Antiochus defiled the temple and before, three years later, it was restored, cleansed, purified, and rededicated 
on the 25th day of the ninth month. Why did Christ keep the Feast of Dedication? Because it points to the future. Antiochus is ancient history. Judas Maccabeus is ancient history. Daniel talks about a modern-day Antiochus who will defile the temple. And the church will have to flee for three and a half years before Christ returns and rededicates us, not as humans, but as immortals. The Feast of Trumpets. The Resurrection. The ultimate rededication of us as the wife of Christ. Is it just happenstance or ironic that God knew what would happen ahead of time, knew when Antiochus would defile the temple, knew when Judas Maccabeus would restore it, knew that it would take eight days of restoration and purifying, and that the Jews would take that time and keep it as a feast of dedication, renewal, and restoration as a historical note in a time of singing and praying and happiness and joy at the restoral of the temple of God. God set the date long before Antiochus ever drew a breath. He said, I will, on the ninth and twenty-fourth and forward, begin to bless you. And ironically, if you want to use the word, the very next day began the celebration of the rededication, the restoral, the renewal, the blessing of God. Wow. This year, for the first time, I'm not going to look at the Feast of Dedication as an extension of Christmas or some day that the Jews kept that I never looked up. I'm going to look to the 9th and 24th, as I have now for 20 years, as the date that God says He's going to begin to restore blessings and begin to call the remnant to heal, to help. And the very next day, I'm going to sing psalms and give prayers of thanks to God that He is beginning to restore and renew and rebuild the latter temple in greater glory than it was under Herbert Armstrong. And the glory of Christ will be there. And it will represent the restoration of all things that Acts 3 talks about when Christ returns of the entire world at the beginning of the millennium. This renewal of the church just prior to Christ's return is a type of the millennium to come. You and I have been given the opportunity to understand, and I don't think there's any group of people on this earth that understand this but you. That's it. How incredibly blessed we are. To whom much is given, much is required.
I'm going to keep the Feast of Dedication. Because I believe it ties in directly with Haggai, where God says, I'm going to start blessing you for the 24th, and you can start celebrating. Go to Isaiah 54. What time is it? I don't have any. I didn't bring my... Two things. I'm almost in overtime. You know, a lot of games are decided in overtime. I want to go to Isaiah 54 for just a moment here. You got nothing else to do. It's the Sabbath. You got comfortable chairs and tables to lean on. You can sleep better that way. Anyway, here in Isaiah 54, well, 52 actually, it talks about God reigning in 52 and how we're supposed to wake up and, and put on the holy garments to begin to look like the bride, in other words. And it says that his watchmen will sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the eternal shall bring back Zion. That's in verse 8. Even the two witnesses are not going to see eye to eye and agree on everything until the signs and wonders of Zechariah 3, when a restoration begins. Then they will see God's hand there, both of them, and come and go to work. Verse 9. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. The church is waste. For the Eternal has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He's going to cleanse it, purify it, rebuild it. That ancient relic in the Middle East is not the Jerusalem of God. It's a Jerusalem that the Arabs claim that they built. It wasn't God that caused that. It was the Arabs. The Eternal has made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the temple vessels will be restored. The temple will be built. Jerusalem will be built. And they will know from the east to the west that God is God. And deny Him. And kill his prophets, as they always have. But this is an incredible renewal. Then it shows the Passover. Now, I think the first and the beginning of the blessings is going to come on the ninth month, 24th day. Now, Joel talks about blessings coming during the first month, during the former and the latter rains will all come in the first month. So great blessing will come then. But something has to happen to begin to stir a remnant to come. Some things have to happen to cause the church to begin to look where God is starting to work. So there have to be some blessings that start there and forward. Then a multitude of blessings will be poured out like the former and latter rains in the first month. Is that the time then when God begins to truly call? He gets the leaders together ahead of time just before Passover, because Isaiah 53 is all about Christ and the Passover. And then right after the Passover appears to be the time that he will stir the remnant to come build the temple. So he begins to bless <clears throat> on 9:24 before one stone is laid upon another in the temple. Then, once the leaders are together, 
and God begins to bless, and just before this nation is completely destroyed by the northern armies, it says the people will flee to saying, how, how do I get to Zion? There in Jeremiah 50, or 51, 50 it is. How do I find Zion? And they will gather in Zion. Jeremiah 50 and 51 say that several different times and ways. So this nation is going to be destroyed. It's going to come soon. And the people will come here just ahead of that destruction. Barely escaping it. And then build the temple of God. And the witnesses will, once the temple of Jerusalem are built, and Antiochus, the end-time Antichrist, defiles Jerusalem and the temple, the church will flee to safety. And that day, the witnesses will go and tell the world what they are and who God is. So I think the Feast of Dedication is a very important time. Chapter 54 sounds like the Feast of Rededication. Sing, O barren, you that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not prevail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, says the Eternal. Worldwide Church of God symbolized the married wife. Then she was scattered and divorced. And there were very few who truly obeyed God, the desolate. And they're going to have more children than before. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Break forth on the right and on the left, and your seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not. Be a time of fear. Now, this is always dual. I mean, what happens to the church is a small microcosm of what will happen to the whole world when the married wife or the bride-to-be is going to have children of the whole earth. That's the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 54. But there will be a smaller fulfillment of that with the remnant ahead of time to show the world who God is. Notice verse 17, uh, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. Isn't that what the witnesses do? Isn't it still a time of danger? Isn't it still a time of trouble when people come against you? They won't during the millennium. That'll all be over. This is still in its first fulfillment during that time. Then he says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the Eternal. He will send His glory and His righteousness, not the self-righteousness that we have all had as Laodiceans. It'll be the true righteousness of God by the power of the Spirit and the glory of Emmanuel. Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. <clears throat> Why do you have a pocket full of holes right now, he goes on to say. When you can come to me, and I will take care of you. What a beautiful story. Why am I keeping the Feast of Dedication from now on? Because it comes immediately after the day God says he's going to restore and bless from that day forward. And I'll tell you, on the ninth month, 24th day, that God does this, we will be happy and joyful and sing psalms to God.
Why not start now? Why not start this year as a projection of what is about to occur? Maybe it'll happen this year. Maybe that's why we're talking about this now. I don't know. We'll see soon, won't we? 23rd of December, I think it is. I'm keeping it. 